Hi, my name is Steve Taylor. Welcome to the ShareEd podcast, created by Robinhood Multi Academy Trust. Hi everyone and welcome. Now in today's podcast, we're going to be listening to a recording that took place in lockdown one with the brilliant and talented Chris Dyson, head teacher of Parklands in Leeds. We think a lot of the messages that we discussed back then are totally applicable to lockdown three and we hope that you'll get a lot from this podcast. In it, Chris talks about really how he supports his community, how he helps the community at the hardest of times and we think you're going to be completely inspired by his approach. Now, at the time that we recorded this, we had a few internet issues, so we have the odd microsecond where the internet drops off. Please bear with us. We still think you'll get a lot from this podcast, and we hope you like it and are inspired by the brilliant and talented Chris. Okay, so welcome to Chris Dyson, head teacher at Parkins Leeds. For those of you who are listening to the podcast, then you'll have known, hopefully have known Chris from Twitter. He's, he's pretty big. I think you're probably up to about... 40,000 followers now, Chris, is that right? Steady now, just 32,000. Just 32,000. So so welcome, Chris. When we were putting together our podcast list, we were looking at people uh, from a range of backgrounds who were going to be able to talk with a real insight into education. And throughout lockdown period, I've looked across and seen some of the tweets that you're putting out. You always come across as a man who's totally totally wedded to their morals and not afraid to have an open discussion, even online with people who are challenging what you stand for. And so I thought that you'd be a perfect person to talk to today with a particular focus on standing up for your community and your school. So um, so welcome, Chris. Well, welcome, Steve and everybody on the podcast. Great to be invited and great to be on. Great. So tell us a little bit about your, if we can start with your career journey, because you're a national leader of education. And from our chat earlier, you've been at Parklands now for, for six years. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about your, your journey into headship and, and how you got started? I'd love to. I mean, it's been the best six years of my entire life uh, since I've been here at Parklands. Uh, it's been an absolutely magical journey. Uh, I came into headship quite late. I was about 43 when I came into being a head. I just couldn't bear leaving the classroom and leaving the, uh, the year sixes uh, and everything such as that. Um, I've, I started my career down in, um, down in Stoke-on-Trent and I moved up to York and I moved across to Leeds. Uh, I was fortunate enough in 2003 to win uh, Teacher of the Year. Uh, one of the lovely little girls in my class back in 2003 is now my Miss Nolan, who's also on Twitter, uh, my maths lead, SLT, um, and basically all the things that we did when she was in my class, she can sort of implement hospital-wise here at Parklands. Um, now, Parklands, uh, six years ago, had had five head teachers in 2013-14. Uh, the governors wanted to dramatically reduce the uh, 150 exclusions that we'd had. We had a padded cell, there was more kids on the roof and in actual lessons. Um, there was an isolation room. Um, the local authority graded the school inadequate, which I actually quite loved uh, because it got me 20 hours free sort of support from the authority. Yeah. Um, so basically, we came into this school. Uh, we had absolutely nothing to lose. And the most pleasing aspect is, is that over the six years, I've only had three staff that have actually left and they've been for promotions. 
Uh, so it's the same team that the authority deemed uh, in, uh, inadequate that in 2017 managed to pull out a bagger, an outstanding grade from Ofsted. Uh, we are one of the most deprived primary schools in the country uh, with 78% pupil premium, but we don't use that as an excuse or a barrier to learning because we're in the top 1% of schools in the country in maths and the top 5% in reading and writing. And although I talk about exam results like that, we don't do any testing unless uh, until basically Easter time for year six, but we build success on a love for learning uh, and bringing, bringing activities into whole school assemblies where I've got 140 parents on a Friday at the best seats in the house assembly, watching children do spelling bees, times tables, uh, having reading awards and other such things. So, But it's been an absolute, absolute magical journey. First of all, getting here and then what we've achieved in the last six years as a team. Yeah, so there are some really interesting things that you've um, that you, that you've touched on there. I mean, in terms of you said at the start, you the school was graded inadequate by by the local authority and had a, had had a big big turnover of head teachers. So, were you looking to go into headship at the time, or did they did someone approach you and say they thought you'd be good for it? You know, it was that sort of school. What because was that your first headship? It was my first headship, and to be fair, if there had been a more experienced candidate, I wouldn't have got the job. Um, only three people applied for the headship here because it was in, you do not want to start your headship journey at Parklands. Um, so, but I've, I've always loved a challenge. I've always played sport to a nice standard. Um, and I thought, I'm going for it. I want to prove people wrong. I want to prove people that if you've got a love and enthusiasm and enthusiasm uh, and a love for learning to inspire we can, we can make a difference, and, and that's what we basically did. So you went for the job. You, uh, you you got the job. You were feeling so in terms of your own leadership at that time, because I know often when people are going for headships, they – well, firstly, a lot of people don't go for headship, do they? Because they see it as a step too far, so they rule themselves out. Mm-hmm. And then often people will wait until they're absolutely ready – or they'll, they'll hold back for a range of reasons. How sure were you when you were going for the Parklands job that you were committed to headship? Did you, if you hadn't got this one, were you going for others? Were you set to, or was it, or was it something about this particular school that, that caught your attention? Well, the best thing about this school is there's only one place it could have gone, because it couldn't have gone any lower. So there was only one place it could go, and that was up, up, up. Um, and it's, uh, it's important to realise that and <clears throat> when you've got pressure on, uh, like that. It's not like I went into a school that was outstanding and I had to maintain that. Uh, it was just important to me that uh, I'd, I'd come straight out of the classroom. So I was a 0.5 year six teacher, 0.5 deputy head. So I had the skill set of being a teacher, which meant when I came in here, I wasn't going for any healthy eating type marks. I wasn't going for any investors marks that a lot of schools go for or art marks. I basically wanted to get me teaching and learning. And I was in that brilliant position where I'd, I was an outstanding teacher uh, who'd always loved and really done well on all my offsteads that uh, I had through my career. But it was basically I could lead from the front. I could, I could talk to these te- uh, teachers. Uh, I could teach their lessons. I could model lessons. Now, six years on, sadly, I've got teachers that teach better than I do. So now, with that succession planning, I've got teachers now that actually do the coaching that I originally did six years ago. Yeah. So, so I think the main thing there is that you've got that absolute credibility with the staff when you start. You can back it up. Oh, 
Getting the staff's trust is essential, especially in your first headship. In fact, we on your first uh, in your first days in any headship that you take on, uh, getting the staff on board and leading from the front. And if I wanted them to do something, I'd do it myself. So I wasn't di- dictating. Uh, lots of face-to-face meetings. I don't sort of run staff through emails. Um, so that's basically what we've been doing and things. So. And how much, when you started the, the journey of headship, did you have a particular staff turnover at, at the start or have you generally, I know you said that you've, you've had three people move on in those six years. So you didn't lose people when you when you, when you first started and came on. The staff were pretty um, open to change, were they? Uh, well, one of the one of the five heads in the previous uh, in the 2013-14 year had had a real uh, a real look at the staffing and things, and a lot of staff had already moved on. I think fifty percent right. of the staff turned over previous year. So I had a team there that was eager, just wanted believing in, and just wanted supporting. Um, so. They could take risks in classrooms. They could get the best teaching. They felt supported dealing with behavioural issues and so so. Yeah. So, how much pressure did the authority put on you in the in that first year to to turn the school around rapidly? I'm thinking about you know you're talking about a real set of principles there. I can imagine in some authorities they would have wanted a real fast turnaround. Sometimes that have put an emphasis on quicker wins rather than a long-term strategy. Did you experience any of that? No, the authority was great. I was obviously having uh, high-pressured meetings. Again, my sort of personality was, although all the data was being criticised, all the exam results were being criticised, I knew that wasn't on my watch. So I knew I'd sort of clean slate at the start. But by working with by working uh, with the authority, with the phonics team and the maths teams, you know, and invest using uh, extra money to invest in training for the staff in house, as opposed to sending them away on courses. That's really valuable. Uh, and I'm blessed that up here in Leeds, with child friendly Leeds, the authority, and even today, six years later, have been absolutely fantastic. Good. That's uh, that, that's great to hear, and I think that, that's one of the things that's come out of lockdown as well, isn't it? The um, the importance of local authorities, as much as um, you know, in, in the whole system. You can really see how the system, local authorities have been diminished in their roles in, in many mm-hmm. many places up and down the country. And during lockdown, really, it's shown what a place there is for them still, hasn't it? Oh, definitely. And as I said, in Leeds, we're, we're very lucky that the majority of primary schools are still local authority. So there's power in numbers and such. Um, I know elsewhere in the country, the local authorities are really, really being cut back. So therefore, you need the academies uh, to sort of step into their role and things. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, mo- mo- moving on in terms of Parklands, how quickly did it was it for for the community to get on board with you? I mean, I suppose if they've been through five teachers in a short space of time, they probably looked at you coming in and thinking that you weren't going to stick around for very long. Very true. And I remember it was my very first Friday I was in here. Uh, I'd spoke to all the staff and I spoke to all the children and I said, I'm going to make you the best school in the country within four years. And I remember seeing the staff's eyes were rolling over all this before and things. Uh, but I knew one of the key ways to get into the into the success of the school was to get into the community. So the, uh, so the first Friday, I think there were Tesco's. I actually went to Marks and Spencer's and I bought 80 donuts. 
And I didn't, I bought it myself. And I got ones with lovely raspberry jam in the middle and custard and things. And I said to all the parents, come and listen to what I want to do at the school. And I yeah. felt like a little five-year-old on the, on the fifth birthday when I invited everyone to my party and nobody yeah. came. Oh, so I had these eight yeah. and I had two parents that came in and one of them didn't even come to this school. And things. So I took the donuts out into the playground when the children were being collected. I distributed them, uh, and I speak to the parents like this. Parents want to be spoken to. I don't use middle class language and try and bamboozle them. I basically made it clear to them that I'm doing it next Friday, the Friday after, the Friday after, until I get 50 people in to listen to the changes I want to make to this school. And lo and behold, following Friday, uh, I ended up with 50 parents there, and then the following Friday, I ended up with 75 parents there. And if we fast forward now to six, uh, six years, our Thunday, Friday, best seats in the house assembly, all hashtag, uh, I got 120 parents in. Wow. Then um, we did High School Musical last year, which I personally directed and did all the choreography, which the staff thought was hilarious because they thought I wouldn't be able to do 13 different dance routines. I did, and that was the single best thing I've ever done in my entire career putting on that show. We ended up having to do it over five nights because the entire community wanted to come and see it. We played it in front of 2,000 people, you wow. know, and it was you know, and just getting that community on side was absolutely essential. And I, I love them all to bits. So it's, it sounds to me as though one of the biggest things that you've done in terms of really transforming this school in the early days is you've made sure, you know, you can tell from your voice that how passionate you are and that you're larger than life. And it sounds as though you've really you really let your personality shine out there to the community so they get a sense of who you are and that you're going to be relentless in trying to push things forward, yeah? That's it. And leading from the front, uh, if parents have got issues, I don't pass it down to the deputy, I don't pass it down to the class teacher, I deal with the issues directly. So if I've got, for example, two parents arranging a fight on my playground at five past three, I ring them up and I say, I'll read them off what's on the Facebook page. It soon gets deleted and things so but I used it as a personal sort of touch yeah. um, so but I mean that's the key if you get tapped into the parents the children are happy the parents are happy and they'll do absolutely anything for the school yeah yeah I think that's um, I, think, I think you're absolutely right and that was the start of your journey so six years on we know that you raise a lot of money for the school I've you know I saw at the start of lockdown you were taking real pride in going out and delivering um, some great food parcels, but you also managed to get a load of shops from your area to contribute to the school really successfully, didn't you? Tell us a little it's, bit. It's, tell us a bit about that. It's just, been, it's just been an absolute dream. So when lockdown uh, in Ireland happened the week before us, I suddenly thought, right, we're going to be next. We're going to be locked down. My priority is food into Tummies, over this time. On the Friday when we actually locked down, I went, I went and spoke to all the parents outside, collected children. I said, listen, no matter how long we locked down, I promise you nobody will go hungry during this time. Yeah. And we had the uh, the funny Saturday in the supermarkets where everybody would stop piling toilet papers and things. Yeah. And I thought, mm, I've got a slight problem now because the supermarkets are going to be on a run. So I've got to have a plan B. And one of the things about being heads is always have a plan B. Always have a plan B. So my plan B was to use um, Leeds City Council catering uh, and to go straight uh, to open up the supply line, uh, straight with a wholesaler. Uh, so when we did actually go into lockdown, 
I had access that I was getting unlimited milk. I was getting unlimited eggs from farm shops. I tapped into a lovely couple of private schools, Fulneck, uh, dependent school, who said, look, come and empty our, our larders out, come and empty our kitchens. Um, so that was the start of the dream. Um, and then I got a contact at Costa Coffee, who loved what I was doing, to basically all the Costa Coffees in the north of uh, in Yorkshire basically allowed me to empty their stores. So I was getting Costa Coffee delivered every week. Uh, all their sort of uh, gluten-free cakes and, and everything such as that. And then the power of Twitter and getting the word out. The next thing, I had McCain's over in Scarborough, who uh, six weeks ago sent an unprecedented 35,000, I've not misheard that, right. sent me 35,000 frozen meals to distribute. I had to work with, uh, with distribution companies. I had to work with... Uh, to lead city council to get a forklift truck to come get 19 tons of food it was it was an entire articulated lorry what company was and that frozen. what was the company McCain's McCain's oven chips wow it was their entire range so it was every single chip that they do jack of potatoes everything frozen but of course I didn't have any freezer space so I had three hours to shift all this food and we did it it was unbelievable um, and Two weeks ago, uh, the lovely people over in Whitby uh, at Whitby Seafood, the brilliant scampi makers, sent me 15,000 bags of scampi, uh, had a wow. something plush, um, sort of croquettes. Uh, there were fish bites, there was everything. And again, we managed to shift all of that. So it wasn't just my school that was being uh, sort of fed. There were buses coming from Bradford to come and collect. Uh, most of the schools in Leeds were coming to collect. So we just shared it among shared it with absolutely everybody. That is, I'm I'm blown away by that. That so you coordinated this, and it was you know it was I turned down the press for that one for the McCain on the start because I thought this could go pear shaped. Right. You know, to shift thirty five thousand meals means I've got to shift ten thousand an hour, and I thought this could go horribly wrong, and I don't want it being on TV. I wish I'd got everyone in now because it it was one of the best days ever in my entire life. Right up there when my my children. I mean, I can't even get my... Get, I didn't expect when we were chatting today that we'd be talking about shifting 35,000 McCain's meals. Good on McCain's and amazing on you on, on being able to distribute that. I mean, t- tell me, as a leader, I'm really interested in... That takes some strategies to get that shifted so quickly. You've got to have a can-do attitude for that, haven't you? And a bit of luck. But if you have that drive... And as I said, we set challenges for children every single day. So I like to challenge myself. You know, I thought I'd maybe take it out a bit too much here. But don't underestimate the power of a, a company up in Wakefield it's based in called the Real Junk Food Project. Because it was these guys that sort of liaised with McCain's. These guys made all these dreams come true. Um, and, you know, a big shout out to the Magic Breakfast as well, um, who who provide breakfast things for, for children uh, all through the year. And they have been equally as brilliant because on top of everything I've just said, um, the Magic Breakfast delivers us 1,000 tins of beans every week, 2,000 boxes of Kellogg's cereals, 1,000 boxes of Scottish porridge oats, Tropicana orange juice. Um, so we've got all this food that's coming in on top of all the fun day freezer Friday stuff that we do. Uh, so when I promise those parents, and that's the main thing about the community, if you say you're going to do something, do it. And when I promise them nobody will go hungry, uh, during this sort of lockdown, you know, we have been sending home around about 60, 70 pounds of food to every single family, not just the free school meal children, 
to every single family in our school. And now we've got that much that's going to the entire community and the entire city of Leeds. Well, I'm inspired by that. I think that is amazing. Absolutely. I think, I think it's just little things because companies want to help, you know. Yeah. Uh, and one thing that we do here at Parklands is it broke my heart, absolutely devastated me on the on the December the 2nd, six years ago, uh, when I walked around school saying, anyone been to see Santa this weekend? Anyone been to see Santa? And I found four kids in my school that have been to see Santa. And as it transpired, kids, these kids on this estate don't go and see Santa because you've got to go all the way into Leeds. And I thought, you know, I've got, I get bored of going to see Santa every year with a kid. You up for a couple of hours, pay six pounds for a little plastic toy. So I thought, I'm going to bring, I'm going to bring Santa to you guys. So I pulled my senior staff in that night, and I said, we're going to open on Christmas Day. I said, because then when we're loading it up ourselves that afternoon, I'll be able to feel that we've done something for these kids at Christmas. Just giving them a simple selection box to open, giving them some food. My senior staff said, nobody's going to do Christmas Day. And they were right. So you've always got to listen to your senior staff. But I wasn't I going to get deterred by that, so I thought we'll do it Christmas Eve. So for the last six years, we have our Christmas Eve, or Christmas Eve Eve extravaganza, where we do 800 Christmas Day dinners, we get 800 presents out, I've got real-life reindeers outside, I've got unicorns in the hall, I've got snow machines. So for those children that I love so dearly, they get a Christmas like everybody else does. And it's and it's funny because obviously in Seacroft, Seacroft, uh, the lads are quite big and strong and you know tuned and things. Yeah. Uh, and when you've got these strapping big year six lads walking up, they are going, <laughs> "Look at them donkeys with sticks on the head!" And it's like the reindeers. They're going, "What? There's no such thing as a reindeer." I thought reindeers were fictional. Good thing so. So it's given them. It's just given them that things that, that myself and yourself and lots of the listeners out here, what we do with our kids. I just wanted my school children to experience what we all do amazing amazing and so aspirational that's um such a i think that i've done it we've done a range of podcasts and i think it's so great to have you on and hear that real community spirit and and that that enthusiasm you know in terms of home learning yes period because i've seen you on twitter you've been quite we I'd say sometimes you've been misunderstood on Twitter because you've put something out there around prioritizing food and, and different things. And then there have been a couple of times where people have, um, have really, I think, had a bit of a pop at you without understanding the, the context of, of how you were operating. I mean, you, you, had, you had a journalist get in touch, didn't you? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, it was uh, Caroline, I forgot her surname now, from uh, The Express. A tweet that was in the mail about Parklands don't do online learning because some teachers are embarrassed. But it was totally misunderstood and misquoted uh, because we have done at home learning um, all the way through school, as it were. Uh, yeah. The point that I was making is that not everyone felt comfortable doing a Zoom lesson. Why? Because yeah. we had no training and things. But we've had lots of, we've got lots of work on Seesaw, lots of uh, online learning for the children to do. But the significant thing is only 18% of our school community had access to a computer or a laptop. Most of the children were doing online learning via the mum's phone on the data and things. And if you've got three, four kids in the house, we needed to make sure, again, we had a plan B. So we were sending home uh, weekly, two, two weekly packs uh, of 
good old fashioned pen and paper homework. Uh, we got all the old uh, sort of reading books out, and we sent all those home. We got the, all the old maths textbooks out that we didn't use anymore, just just so we give an opportunity yeah. uh, for children to still be learning. Um, but it was funny because after the, the tweet went out, everybody came out in support of Parklands. Everybody went against Caroline. Yeah. They knew what Parklands does for not only our school, but community. And on a personal note, at the end of 24 hours later, I'd ended up with three and a half thousand new followers all supporting us and, and saying, we're behind you on this. We're behind. And it was not only me, my normal Twitter sort of um, friends that was doing it, it was people that I'd had disagree with, disagreements with the past about because although they disagree with me, you can never take away the, the love and the heart that's gone into, into Parklands. Yeah. And I think, I'll tell you what concerns me a little bit about social media at the moment is there are people looking to put the boot into education and you know, that, that, that journalist was one. Without the context, they'll go after a, I think Vic Goddard's been the victim of this as well, hasn't he? When you see he's, he's, an absolute, he's, an, he's an absolute legend, a great leader. He is awesome. But you see that he's posted the odd thing where someone's gone after it and totally misinterpreted it because they've mm-hmm. just read a single, a single sentence. Tell us about Lord... That's, sad, that's sadly the world, the world we're in at the moment. People, people can read into anything. Obviously on Twitter, you've only got like 170 characters to sort of put your message across and things. I thought you were incredibly brave. Well, I think you're incredibly brave. Uh, certainly a hell of a lot braver than me when you um, you sent Lord Adonis a message, didn't you? Because Lord Adonis has been, um, I think it's fair to say he's been a little bit critical of education, hasn't he? Just a little bit. Massive, massively. And, and that's what is so upsetting when you've got a lot of people on the outside who's criticising what's going on in the inside, as it were. Now, the points that, um, that Andrew Adonis uh, made were well, very valid, you know. We want online learning, we want these things. But can't suddenly set that up once we've locked down. These things needed to be sort of planned in advance, you know. Fair play to the DFE, who I think have had a pretty much of a disaster in this last four months, but set up the Oak Academy, you know, which was brilliant, fantastic for the children who have got laptops and internet speed at home, which means they can access it. But it wasn't much use to my school and my community, um, because we just didn't have the technology. And I think looking back in hindsight now, we we have to do a lot more deprived areas with looking at broadband speed and other such things. Yeah, I agree. I, 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 absolutely. And I think you made your point to Lord Adonis pretty well. I mean, you referenced him as being a donut, didn't you? Came across quite well, that as it were. I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you if, if there's nothing else we know from this podcast, you like your donuts, don't you? <laughs> Well, I've got to get all the weight off now. Uh, now we'll get back to normality and things. So yeah. So um, so just mo- mo- moving on with. Um, tell us a little bit more about you, okay? Because what I'm what what we're interested in this podcast as well is about what makes leaders tick. Now we've got a good sense of your personality and your drive. You mentioned sport. Thinking back across your life, and it doesn't have to be someone in education. Who's been the biggest influence on you, do you think? To make no, I'm in mum. I'm in mum. Your mum. You know, uh, I was unfortunate. Uh, my dad left home when I was five years old, so I didn't. I got brought up without a dad. Uh, my mum brought up my, my brother and my sister and myself. Um, we had free school meals. We had free school clothes. 
for Christmas. We got one basic present. But we had an abundance of love. We had so much love going around the, the sort of family. And that really made me a sort of as a person so that when I came into teaching, you know, I knew what it was like to go without. I knew what it was like to watch all your friends getting everything they want and things, going on foreign holidays and things. I didn't fly till I was about 21. Uh, so for a holiday for us, it'd be down to Stegness or for a, for a long weekend and things. But we had so much love. And that's what I've always tried doing as a as a training teacher, as an NQT, as an RQT, as a maths leader, deputy and as a head, is show the love, show the love and people feel so valued. And that's not just the children, I'm talking about staff as well. Because yeah, yeah. what we've done at the school would be out, would be absolutely nothing if it, if it wasn't for the brilliant team I've got behind me and working alongside me. Yeah, yeah, amen. So how does your mum feel about you being a head teacher? Oh, she loves it, you know. She gets to see me on the telly most weeks. Things so, uh, uh big love to me, Mum. Sadly, two weeks ago she had a fall and broke her arm and smashed the glasses and things. Uh so that was a bit really tough on her and things, but I managed to get down and see her via the garden, as it were. So Yeah. Well, that's great to hear about hear about your mum being such a great influence. And I suppose that also that that really shows about it gives us an insight into why you're so passionate about driving for the community because you know that you've been there and you know that you know what it is to to grow up in that you know you know and and what a success what a success she made you know as i said we we didn't have a lot growing up and my sister ended up swimming in the commonwealth games for team gb yeah. uh, my brother ended up being a derbyshire second team uh, sort of cricket coach uh, and england under 14 wicket keeping coach uh, and i ended up being a teacher so yeah. there we go. All good. But making a but making a massive difference, and that's what it's about, isn't it? The can you tell us about a significant setback you've had in your career where you've where you thought you were going to jack it in, or or where something's really knocked you? Yeah, I remember uh, I was at school that I'll remain nameless uh, once when the head pulled me into the office, and again, all these things you learn from how to speak to people and motivate and. I remember I came into her office and she had my application form in front of her. She was going through my application form with a highlight and saying, you say you've done this, lie. You've said you've done that, lie, lie. And then she ended up ripping it up in front of me and chucking it in the bin. And I went home that night and I felt the lowest I've ever felt. And I thought, I can't do this anymore. I can't teach anymore. And it was the only time, and you know, mental health, I've not really ever struggled with, but it knocked me sideways that. So the following That's day I was on my way into work. Was that for an internal promotion or you were getting some advice on an application for another job or something? No, I think they were just not as uh, happy with my performance as my application oh. made out. As oh, uh, okay, got you. So you got the job and then she was holding yeah. for it. Yeah. It came around the time my first child was born and that's why I know that when people have the first children, they need an extra bit of care and attention because your priorities change. I mean, instead yeah. of being looking forward to Friday night out with the mates and things, Saturday you know, going out for a lovely meal, suddenly you've got a new life you're responsible for. So probably looking back, I did go a bit lazy and things. Um, but it was where we just spoke to. But as I said, I was driving into work the next day and I got to a set of traffic lights and I thought, I do this. And I just ended up turning around and going home. Uh, and I ended up being off for two weeks. Uh, I remember going to look around in nursery thinking, oh, I could buy a nursery, that would be my next career. Um, but then something happened after about seven days of being off something clicked and I thought right just got to go back to basic what did I do that made me so 
in my own words, brilliant when I was at my best. And I went and unpicked everything. And, you know, I went back, uh, kept my, got my head down, worked. Um, and, you know, a year after that, I remember some, some of the senior staff saying to me, can't believe you came back from that. We thought you'd finished. We thought you'd finished. So, again, I can see triggers in my own staff now when anxiety is coming in. And it's my job to get the best out of them. Not to, I'm not. I'm not one of the heads that criticise the capability. I'm there to to get the best I possibly can from this squad of players that I've got. Yeah, you know when you, one of the biggest things about you know uh, when you're speaking to deputy heads and, and leaders coming through, often one of the the things that's raised with me is people will say they don't understand vision. They don't understand how to get a vision for something. Mm-hmm. Now I think. To get a vision for something, you've got to have had your back to the wall. You've got to have seen something that fundamentally tests every value and moral fiber in your body. And when you know that that's how you shouldn't operate, having a vision is really easy. Because sometimes to become the person and the leader you've got to become, you've got to go through these setbacks. And at the times, the setback is the worst thing in the world. When you fast forward to you as a leader then, Sometimes, well, I think most of the best learning comes personally when I've had my back to the wall and I've learned a lot about the person who's delivering something with me, but then I've also learned a lot about how I've reacted in that situation. Then you know what then you have a vision because you know what you you know what you believe, you know what you, you don't believe in, so you know what you aim for, don't you? You do. You learn so much during the tough times. So so much. And it makes you stronger. You know, it can finish some people, sadly. But if you get that bit between your teeth, you can use those negatives and really flip them into positives and things. So totally agree. So to, to finish off this, um, this podcast, if you were going to give three top tips for aspiring leaders, Chris, what would you, what would you say to them? Trust. Trust in them. Everybody's got a skill. If you want to get yourself into a, into a senior position where you're looking for deputy headships or headships, You've got a skill. You've got a skill to be in that position. So trust the people to, to lead, you know. Don't micromanage them in things, but trust them to lead. Second thing is ask for advice, you know. Everybody, I have to ask advice, and Twitter is a great place to ask, you know, because although I see myself as a real leader when it comes to timetables in particular and maths, you know, I've got to tap into brilliant people like Simon Smith for reading, Mark Unwin for the, for the curriculum thing, yeah. so... There's lots of people you can share ideas. I mean, look what, look what you guys have done. I mean, during this pandemic, you know, the best thing that's come out of it is the, the way in which academies have worked alongside local authorities, independent schools, and we've all really come together as one. Um, and, you know, the work that, that you guys have done it, um, with sharing your curriculum and things, the work that Barnell down in London where shared, has been absolutely brilliant. And nobody's charging, everyone's saying, look, Share it, share it. So I think we've really got to take the positives. Yeah. We've got to take the positives of this uh, and carry on working together so closely. Otherwise, we want to be satisfied now, Steve. So to summarise, um, it's trust, it's ask for help. And what, what's the third one, Chris? Just make sure you look after your own well-being. Uh, you've got to make sure you can relax and switch off, whether it's family time, whether it's exercise time, going swimming, going for a lovely meal. That that is the the key because if you're strong, the team's strong. Yeah, I agree, hundred percent. Well, Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast, and 
I feel inspired listening to you. So, you know, in education, we need the most passionate people and you certainly are that. So thank you for spending some time with us and, and, and sharing your insights. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm now going to go and treat my beautiful year six children to a McDonald's because it's the last day today. Um, so, but absolutely brilliant, Stephen. Thank you. And all the guys at uh, Robin at Robin Hood Trust and things that have shared everything. Absolutely amazing. Been a pleasure. Well, we hope that you found today's podcast with Chris Dyson useful and inspiring. I certainly didn't expect to hear about how he'd commandeered thousands of pounds worth of food and distributed it across Leeds. That, for me, is true leadership, and we hope you took a lot out of it. This has been a Robin Hood Multi-Academy Trust production. And as always, you can get in touch with us at Robin Hood Trust on Twitter. Until next time, catch you later.